Welcome to the NCLA podcast. I am your host, Rachel Mann, and today I'm joined by Evan Whitehead. Evan has worn many hats in his education career from teaching to Title I director and assistant superintendent of special services. And in his current role, in addition to being the director of special services, he's a national consultant, trainer, presenter, speaker, frequent podcast contributor. He is a mental health advocate, a mindfulness practitioner, and a proponent of equity, diversity, and intercultural competency. And Evan and I had just a wonderful conversation last week, so I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today and to share with you some of his experiences and his leadership journey. So thanks so much for joining me today, Evan. Thanks for having me on, Rachel. I appreciate it. Before we jump into some of the the questions that I want to ask you today, can you just share some about your leadership journey, how you got to where you're at today? Well, definitely, you know, um, I would say the path that I, you know, took to leadership was probably a little unconventional. Um, I actually started um, as a paraprofessional teacher assistant at Therapeutic Day School. And um, I was kind of pushed in the right in the right direction um, to go back to school and finish my undergraduate degree in special education. Um, I had some really great teachers that I worked with um, that saw something in me and kind of decided, hey, you know what, you should go take take a look and try to do this. So I did that. And then um, once I finished, you know, I had some life experience and also some experience, obviously working in the schools already. So by the time I was actually teaching, um, some, some opportunities came my way. And that was my first leadership opportunity was when I was overseeing uh, the Latino parent outreach program. Um, and that was great because even though I was still a classroom teacher and teaching special ed, I had this opportunity to coordinate this program where, um, you know, we had, over 300 parents every Saturday. Uh, we offered free transportation, tr- free childcare. We had eight different levels of English courses, a citizenship class, and also we had computer literacy courses, and those were done um, in English and Spanish. So we had the, um, the the computer literacy teacher that was there, and then I was translating um, for him during that time. So it was a great experience, and that's kind of when I first got the leadership bug, so to speak, formally. And then, um, you know, after being in the classroom for some time, there was an opportunity for me to go into the discipline side of things. Um, So I became a dean of student discipline. um, And that was a learning experience in and of itself. Um, Had no idea the amount of time that is given to something like that. You know, you have... uh, Weekends are filled with um, athletic and activities um, that you have to be on campus for. Um, And then obviously during the week um, being around as well because there's practices going on. So, um, you know, there was a lot involved with that. And at the time, my 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 youngest, my my daughter at the time was very young. She was under the age of five. Um, And so there was a lot of being a new father and being away a little bit from the family. Um, but it was it was a really good learning experience. After doing that for a little while, I had a chance to 
do community outreach um, over at, you know, on a district-wide level. Um, so then I was working with not only our Latino parents, but also working with African-American parents, um, working with our low-income families um, and students, and also working with um, our students of color. And during that time, I, I created a program that was for um, those students of color and students that would that had the potential to be first generation college students and providing them, you know, access and opportunity to what college and career could look like. Um, and it was great. It was it was phenomenal. We had so many students come out. We took them on uh, college field trips. They got a chance to see a college campus. For some of them, it was it was brand new. Um, we had guest speakers come in and speak to them um, just about the college experience and what college life was like. And then we also, um, through that, um, it began to change the way in which um, we looked at um, college coursework because um, I worked with the one with two of the guidance counselors at the time, and we were really looking at the data in terms of um, the number of students um, at the high school that were um, of color that were in AP and honors coursework. Um, and we saw that the data was pretty skewed um, in the direction that, that, you know, they weren't very well represented. So we began to change um, some of the prerequisites and, cri and criteria to get in those courses. So that was really influential. We were really influential in doing that, just changing the mindset of that. Um, with that, uh, you know, kind of got a nudge again about going back to school and, and becoming and getting my uh, master's degree in ed leadership um, and administration. So there was a group of us that that decided to enter the program together, and it was it was a great opportunity because we were all colleagues. So so we were truly a learning community together, and um, you know I enjoyed it. I learned a lot of the technical pieces that I didn't know, but it was great because it it, it improved my skill set. Um, once I finished the program, you know I was eager and excited, and you know this is kind of where. The, the track to leadership for me becomes a little unconventional because typically, you know, the track is, you know, you're a classroom teacher and then you're in a teacher leadership role and then some type of, you know, um, quasi middle management, like a dean's role or maybe like an instructional coach or something of that nature. And then the next progression is usually an assistant principal um, in a building. Well, um, just so happened the, the year before I finished my program, our district had hired four new assistant principals. So um, the timing wasn't the best. And um, you know, when I finished, I, I spoke to, to my superiors and the folks that were in leadership, and they were very honest with me. They just said you know, that they could not predict when another opening would happen. It could be a year, could be two years, could be five or six years from now. But um, they encouraged me if I truly wanted to become a leader um, to go ahead and look for um, professional growth opportunities in other districts. And I can say that's probably one of the one of the best pieces of advice um, that I receive and also learning um, in terms of cultivating leadership and then um, creating like a leadership tree in which, you know, if you create great leaders and they go on to other places, you still get the recognition of helping to build those leaders. And that's something that I've kind of brought with me um, at the districts I've gone to and when I started to lead. So I, I took that leap of faith and put some applications out there. And, you know, it just happened to be one of those years where there weren't a lot of assistant principal jobs opening or, you know, um, to be honest with you, um, because I didn't maybe didn't have the experience, people didn't want to bring me on right away. 
but I, I applied for um, many positions and I also applied for a position in central office. Um, I applied for an assistant superintendent role. Um, it looks similar to what an assistant principal of student services would be. The district wasn't extremely large, so I figured, you know, that type of role would be manageable, um, you know, if I could see myself in that. And um, I applied, and I tell you, um, I am typically would have normally said I'm, I see myself as a great person that interviews, and I interview really well. Um, I went on this interview. It was a one-on-one interview with the superintendent, and she had a poker face. No emotion, no affect, anything. And I thought I bombed the interview. I thought it was. <laughs> I, thought, I, I really did. I came home, and my wife asked me how the interview went, and I told her I said I didn't do well at all. It was. It was. It was the most challenging interview I ever had. I said, "There's no way they're going to call me back." Um, and then, literally a day later, I got a phone call to come in for a second interview, which surprised me. I was so shocked, so shocked that I get a, even get a second interview for an assistant superintendent position. And I went through that process, um, kind of the second round. And then, um, you know, I was blessed and fortunate to be offered the position. And I became an assistant superintendent at 34 years old. Um, and I was the youngest assistant superintendent in the state at that time. And also, um, I was the only African-American male um, within my age demographic that was an assistant superintendent as well. So it was it was a huge learning curve, um, huge learning curve for me, um, you know, going from a building level as a dean and doing community outreach work to now central office administration. But I tell you, um, the superintendent that hired me um, became uh, my first mentor um, that really supported me in terms of leadership and education. Um, she passed away about two years ago um, and she had a great impact on my life and she pushed me. She she saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see in myself and she took a risk and she took a leap of faith on hiring me. And uh, my, my goal was to never let her down. And, you know, I learned so much um, because I had to. It was literally like on-site learning um, and, and kind of baptism by fire, so to speak. Um, but it was great because everything that I learned in that district, in that role, I was able to take to other positions and other roles as well. And um, that kind of started me on my path to central office admin work. Um, so I've been doing that for 11 years now. Um, and this is my 23rd year in education. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly learning, constantly growing. Um, I think because of the opportunities that were afforded to me and the supervisors and mentors that I had along the way, I've been able to carry that into the way that I um, lead and the way that I see opportunities in people. Um, because I, you know, for someone who, who, you know, was a late bloomer, so to speak, and had to catch up to, to his peers um, in terms of finishing his undergraduate degree and then starting, you know, as a teacher assistant paraprofessional and making it to, you know, be able to be in central office. Um, you know, I really want to be able to give others those opportunities too. And I think that's the type of attitude and mentality that, you know, within our, within our profession, if we can do that for the adults, that also trickles down for the young people as well and, and not, not having any boundaries or limits to what they can do. What a phenomenal story. I mean, you refer to yourself as a late bloomer when you were the youngest assistant superintendent at the age of 34. That is just so phenomenal to make that journey from paraprofessional and just having some people who 
believe in you. And like you said, uh, having someone who believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And, and that's when we sometimes become our best because we're proving that person right for seeing that in us. And such a lesson to leaders in, in where we place our efforts in helping yes. to grow, grow the people around us. Definitely so, yes. Well, and I know you're doing some innovative work within the district. Can you share with us an innovative practice that's taking place right now that others who are listening in may be able to replicate? Well, you know, um, COVID has has caused all of us to become creative and innovative. Um, even if we thought we were, um, it's pushed our limits to think beyond that. And um, one thing that I'm extremely proud about from my district and, um, you know, my superintendent, who is phenomenal, Dr. Janice Jackson, she has always um, given me the opportunity to um, think outside the box and be innovative and supported me in doing that. And that takes a lot of trust. Um, to do so. But we've, you know, we've really centered our focus on the social emotional well-being of our adults, um, understanding that given this time and space over the last 11 months, um, you know, we can't lose uh, the human and the humanistic, you know, viewpoint of what's going on. Um, as much as we as educators see ourselves as um, fixers and helpers and, you know, that we're willing to, to put oftentimes um, the, the needs of others before ourselves, you know, it's easy to forget about taking care of ourselves. And I want to say probably first week of April, 2020, um, as we, were in a remote setting, um, we saw it, we felt it, um, we heard it, that the teachers that were in um, our organization, our educators, um, they were feeling overwhelmed. They were anxious. Um, they didn't know quite what to expect and they didn't know how to navigate everything. You know, um, the world changed abruptly right? From, from what we knew. And that in and of itself is a crisis, um, but also can, can be a traumatic experience. And I think that we, like probably some other districts around the country and, and organizations in the world, we kind of glossed over it as if it was no big deal, right? That, oh, we can, we can just be able to go to a remote learning environment and we'll just try to pack in everything that we did in person and do it remotely. Right. So we're going to have, you know, six and a half, seven hours of schoolwork online. We're going to make sure that, you know, our hours are the same as they were um, in person. And we soon realized that um, that wasn't going to work. I think that was the early stages of virtual um, communication, whether it's uh, whether you were using a, a Google platform or you're using Zoom. And I would say those first two weeks. We encountered what now has been coined Zoom fatigue because mm -hmm. we were just physically and emotionally feeling drained um, from being on the computer. You know, we know best practice in terms of um, technology, right? In terms of what that means in, in terms of screen time for young people, you know, well, it applies to adults too. And I think that we lost sight of that 
Um, and we didn't realize how much being virtual um, took to be present, right? You, you have to learn how to read, um, you know, emotions or body language. Um, it's hard to grab um, context right away. It takes time and it's a lot of concentration to do that. So it's, it's taken us, you know, as a, I think as an educational community, probably, you know, a good eight months to train our brains um, to, to, to operate differently in this, in this remote uh, setting in a, in a virtual setting. So what, what we did is we focused on the adults. Um, we, we, st- we really wanted to say, how can we make sure that the adults in the, in our, in our building and our district are well, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, psychologically, you know, um, all those things, you know, came into play and they weren't. So um, I had a colleague of mine who um, is a is a global educator. Um, she's currently located in the UK, but was had to ha- happened to be teaching in China and was on her way back home right when um, when COVID first hit. And um, she was providing the same perspective globally that I was seeing in my own district. Teachers, educators were having a hard time um, pushing through. You could see it on their faces. You could see the expressions. And she said, you know what? I Like, it's who's thinking about the educators? That was a question she asked. You know, we're thinking about the students, which is great. We're thinking about the parents. But, you know, the educators, you know, we lost sight of taking care of ourselves and taking care of the people that we lead. So, you know, my famous question now that that has been coined that I tend to ask folks to, as you said, to push them in another direction. So what are you going to do about it? And that was it. Then what are you going to do about it? You know, um, if you've if you've ever heard me say is that's what I what I will ask if you if you really want to make a change and you're talking about it, then do something about it. And her response was, yes, I want to do something. So she and I created what we call the um, alphabetic survival guide um, for COVID-19. And what we did is from the month of April through the end of May, we took a letter of the alphabet. Um, She and I looked to our contacts, members of our PLN um, that could speak to wellness and well-being and mental health. And, and they took a letter of the alphabet and took and then took a word um, with that letter. And they came in and spoke for about 15 minutes, provide some tips, some tricks, some tools, um, told a little bit about their own story and what they were experiencing presently so we could all connect and understand. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, she and I kind of gave a forecast. She gave her forecast globally of kind of what was going on with the pandemic and what she was going through. Um, you know, we talked about how things are looking locally. Um, and then at the end, we just, you know, gave time, you know, folks time to kind of um, reflect. And we did that and it worked out so well. Um, so that's a practice, I think, that we carried on. Um, along with some work that I do with Ruby Payne in terms of emotional poverty training and workshops. We incorporated that and that's been on the forefront. And then more recently, almost as we, as you know, we're speaking, um, we, as we go to um, look at implementing our reentry plan for Monday, um, we have included um, health, well-being and wellness into that plan. And we are going to be providing um, opportunities where um, we have resources for our staff. Um, some will be in person, one to one with a wellness coach. Um, 
and others will be working with a local um, NAMI, um, which is the mental health um, organization. Um, they have a site in our in our community which offers um, clinicians and peer counselors there. Um, if you want to go and drop in, they're open from 1 to 9 p.m. And, and they're open 365 days a year. So if you ever feel you need to go speak to someone, talk to someone, if you're experiencing some anxiety, um, some stress, just going through some things and, and need someone to talk to, it's there. It's a free resource. So we're going to be offering that. Um, we recently, over the over the over the summer break, we put together a wellness space in a wellness room. Um, so we have that, and there's workout equipment. There are mats for doing yoga. We have televisions in there. We have um, we have a, an office where um, we're going to look to have someone on site. As I said, the wellness coach working with people. Um, and they can schedule appointments um, during their their free period, their lunch period, um, or possibly even uh, after school um, to go down there and speak with um, someone to help them work through some of their needs. Um, and I feel really good about it. Um, you know, it's it's something that is my passion and what I believe in. Um, I think that as a district and a school, we've always believed in that because we understand that it's so important that um, people are in a good space um, to work with our students, right? Um, you know, we often talk about the teacher that, you know, um, could do damage, you know, because of their instructional practices. But, you know, the other part is if, if we are human, as human beings are not well, and we are not grounded in a good, in a good space, you know, we bring that into the classroom um, when we're working with our young people. We bring that to the, to the lounge, when we're eating lunch, we bring that to the staff meetings and our interactions um, daily with our colleagues. Um, if we're in leadership, we bring that um, into our offices and then when we're interacting with those that we serve. So I think that, you know, by our mission alone, um, by doing that, um, our hope is that we can be proactive instead of being reactionary as most of us were. Um, about 10 months ago, and making sure that we're um, taking care of one another, um, you know, during this time and this, and this transition back. Everything that you're doing is so important during these times and that you're really watching out for the adults, because as you're saying, how how can they possibly be good for students if they're not taking care of themselves? It's the whole uh, putting on your oxygen mask first 100%. in order to be able to save others. So that's yeah. that's fantastic, and I love the concept of using the alphabet as a way to identify these different wellness practices. You know, and it's, I've heard more people talk openly about mental health issues, even questioning, thinking to themselves, "Well, no, I'm not depressed," but then noticing manifestations that yes. they're almost in denial of their of their emotions. So I think that sometimes too. Being able to recognize just it within oneself those things that may be manifesting without r realizing what is happening. Yes. Well, you know, I think um, a lot of a lot of what we're experiencing now and it's manifesting. And I think that um, speaking about it right shows that um, we're moving in a direction in terms of accepting vulnerability as being okay. You know, and and, you know, I I'm a huge proponent of that. You know, I, I speak um, 
you know, from my heart. I share my own um, challenges um, that I've gone through in the past um, in terms of mental health and well-being, you know, um, because I think it's important that that people see others um, that have gone through it or are going through it and can go through it and, and come out on the other side well. Um, I think it's important, and especially in our in our field of education, because we, you know, a lot of us suffer from um, imposter syndrome, you know, um, and that's some of that is created by our the culture of our profession. Um, a lot of us, you know, are believing in this, you know, we'll just kind of fake it till we make it and we'll, you know, do the best we can or put on a happy face. You know, when when things aren't necessarily so happy because, you know, we don't want to demonstrate that or or show that for other people in front of other people. But I think, you know, the reality is, is like this is a trying time right now. And, you know, um, self-care and the need for self-care um, is at a premium. And, you know, I think the the more that we as a profession of educators can be open and honest and accept, you know, that it's going to, it's better for everyone. You know, um, a lot of my work that I do is rooted in the social emotional learning competencies, um, such as self-awareness, social awareness, responsible decision-making, um, you know, self-management, you know, and relationship skills. Those are the things that we used to call soft skills, the things that you learn to get along with people. And, you know, the big one about the self-awareness is huge because in order to be socially aware and make a change, whether that's your school community or your external community or, you know, working with your students, et cetera, you have to be self-aware. You have to know your strengths. You have to know your challenges um, because if you don't know your blind spots, how can you improve to be a better person? And that carries over for students as well, right? Um, we always talk about a growth mindset and getting better. And we, and we, we, we preach that a lot for our young people. Um, but I think, I think the reality is, is that if we're not doing it ourselves and demonstrating some vulnerability and that we're not perfect and we need to, we can work on things as well, you know, that honesty, um, carries so much impact on the young people that we work with. And it becomes infectious. It becomes infectious of a culture. Um, and that, and that's something that that's really important. And, you know, I think, does it matter what your, um, content area is your specialty? Does it matter if you're, um, elementary, uh, middle school, high school? Um, it doesn't, doesn't matter what your subject area is. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're all human beings and the human part is what drives the work to be successful. Um, I read something the other day, you know, that reminded me that for every successful person, um, whatever field or profession there was, that person had a teacher at some point in time that they came in contact with some with someone um, that was a teacher and educator at some point in time. And to me, the reflective piece about that is that experience can be very, very good and powerful, or it can be negative and be very powerful. And it can affect the, the, how 
a child continues through their life and what type of adult they become and what type of experience they do and the, and the ability to take risks as you know, is so important as we talk about students becoming college and career ready, um, being able to adapt, being able to take on some challenges that are calculated and safe and understanding um, what that means, and also being able to be innovators, right, and think outside the box. You know, if, if, if I um, do not have the self-awareness um, you know, and I'm not able to do that and I don't have the confidence and the self-esteem to do that, I'm never going to take a risk to try to um, problem solve and try to um, figure out something that no one else has been able to figure out. I'm not going to take those chances. So I think the more that we do that, um, the better. I think it's so important. So um, I just think that that piece about vulnerability, um, I hope it, it remains a theme um, through um, our profession moving forward. Um, I, I think that now that we can share all of our experiences and realizing that um, we're so we're so connected and interconnected, I think that the pandemic has demonstrated that as well. Um, the pandemic doesn't discriminate um, based on you know race, ethnicity, um, you know social emotional um, or or, or uh, socio socioeconomic status. It doesn't discriminate. You know. By any means, and I think it's shown that we all have a common thread, and we're a lot more similar. So there's ways in which collectively um, we can move our profession um, in in the positive direction. Absolutely, and you know we we've done so much to take care of phys the physical side of the pandemic. You know, putting up the uh, barriers, wearing masks, you know, hand sanitizing stations everywhere, mm -hmm. but. Or, or I saw that you got your vaccine today. Congratulations. Yes, yes. yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm slightly jealous. <laughs> but, uh, but, that, but that emotional side, it's, uh, you know, if, if we're not taking care of the emotional side, it's going to manifest manifest um, regardless. So, yes. um, well, and also while I was uh, stalking your Twitter feed for our conversation, I saw a quote that you posted that said, there's only one thing that makes a dream impossible to achieve. And that's the fear of failure. And I absolutely love that quote quote. And, you know, we learn so much from each other's failures. And I wanted to see if there's something that you've had to overcome a hurdle or, you know, a possible failure uh, in your role and how did you approach it or overcome it? I mean, there are several, <laughs> there, there are, there, there are several. Um, I think I, you know, I, I went into, I got into education by accident. Okay. Um, I had, you know, taken some time off school, like many of us have. Um, and I was, I was in limbo. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, didn't know, you know, what I actually wanted to major in. Had changed my major like several times, like, like a lot of people have. And, um, you know, my mother happened to be working at a therapeutic day school, um, for students uh, with autism and she was a one-on-one -on -one aide and she's like, you know what? You really need like a job that can kind of 
get you in a position to have a career? And she said, you know, the, the special education co-op that I work for is hiring. You should go apply. I said, sure, why not? You know, had no idea. She's like, you know, you've 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 done some coaching. You've always worked with kids, you've been good with kids. You'll, you know, you'll you'll probably do pretty well. I got hired right on the spot. And I started, I think I got hired, and I think it took maybe 72 hours for like paperwork to clear, and I was hired. I started working. And um, you know, I didn't realize that I was working at a therapeutic day school and I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so for your listeners that may not know, um, so a therapeutic day school for students with IEPs and um, specifically students that have um, an emotional um, disability, um, they are provided service and support there because their home school district may not have the structures or the continuum of services to do so. So oftentimes these students would be, would exhibit either external, you know, physical aggression behaviors or internal um, behaviors, which are more social, emotional based, um, you know, possibly self-harm, um, obviously feeling, you know, a lot of bouts with depression, anxiety, et cetera. Um, and I had no idea. I walked in, had no clue. And I want to say the first day at work, um, I was um, asked and brought in to help physically manage a student. And I will tell you that that right there was probably one of my biggest educational challenges um, because if you've never had to physically manage a child, and I say child because it doesn't matter if they're in kindergarten or they're a junior in high school, they're, they're still children. Having to do that, I say, was probably the, one of the worst experiences um, in my career. For the simple fact that even though you you understand um, as the adult that, you know, what is happening and what the child may be doing or saying about you to you, um, their aggression towards you, um, which, you know, in that case was, you know, swinging fists and chairs and kicking and, um, you know, and having to do that and then just seeing the amount of emotional energy that um, drains them, you know, I was not prepared for that at all. Um, it shook me. It really did. Um, it shook me because, you know, I didn't think in all my years and then having and then me working in school like that was not what school was to me. But it was it was it was a reality that I had to experience. But, you know, that probably was one of the biggest lessons in my educational career about understanding um, the simplicity and also the um, true honesty of children and students, right? It doesn't matter if you look like an adult man or an adult woman, right? It doesn't matter how physically big you are. You know, if you're still a child and you have a developing brain, um, there's things you have to work through. And took a lot out of me. It, it took a lot out of me not to have a physical, emotional response myself 
Um, and I think it was extremely powerful. So I would say that probably led to my foundation of having a passion for social emotional well-being and working with students and adults alike and helping um, adults navigate and understand that. Um, that was probably my biggest my biggest educational challenge and triumph um, that I would say that that catapulted me into what I'm doing now. Um, it was a tough lesson, but I, I'm glad it was a lesson that I that I learned. Well, we have more conversations in the future after this podcast because uh, between the um, have, having the friend who was coming back from China during COVID times and now talking about this, I was a director for a therapeutic camp. Oh, one summer. oh wow. Oh, my gosh. And, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I just talking about the, the physical component. I just think about having to restrain a child at sometimes yeah. for hours, yes. for hours waiting for a backup to come because we were always short staffed. Yes. And it was something that was so draining. Not And, you know, you're just feeling the energy and the pain yes. of that child. And you know that, that this struggle is more than just a physical struggle against you at that moment. The, mm -hmm. you know, just the stories of what they're going through. Yeah. It's definitely lost many nights of sleep. We're worrying about the children. It's a, Difficult yes, position. it is. Wow. Well, that's uh, uh, well, I'm thankful that they had you and um, that your influence on their life, which brings me to who has had the biggest influence on your life and why? I'm pausing because um, I have several. And the way that I think about it is there are people that have been in my life that filled um, support that I needed, you know, um, you know, there was a time where in terms of, you know, my, I would have said my dad, you know, probably definitely my young, in my younger years, um, probably, probably until, you know, high school. Um, and then post high school, um, I would definitely probably say, um, I have two uncles that have been very influential. My, they're um, my mom's brothers who really took um, a mentorship role in me and have taken me along in my journey and, uh, you know, definitely in learning that. And then um, in, in terms of, you know, other like influences, I, you know, my grandmother was huge um, influence on my, my maternal grandmother. She was probably the most straightforward and honest person that I ever met. Um, she didn't hold anything back like, like many grandparents, you know, do, but, um, you know, she had seven children and, you know, had 22 grandchildren. So I have a lot of first cousins. Um, but she like, did she told you exactly how it was. Didn't hold any punches. But she did it because it was as if she knew the world was not going to be kind to you. And I think, you know, I could always count on her to give it to me straight. Right. And I could always ask her a question. And I knew that she would give me direct answers. She wouldn't beat around the bush with anything. When other people would try to sugarcoat things, she she wouldn't do that. Um, and even 
even as she got older, um, you know, and she started suffering from some health issues in terms of, you know, dementia, um, I would call her and my voice would be a trigger for her. So she'd immediately know it was me and she, you know, we go in a conversation or, you know, even at, in her eighties, she would call my cell phone and knew my number. Like it was nobody's business. And I could count on hearing from her at least once a week and checking in on me. So, you know, um, obviously she's no longer here, but a huge influence on me, um, you know, from, from my work ethic, um, from my ability to understand the world, um, and also probably the way in which I'm observant and um, mindful of people as well. From, I get that from her. Hmm. We we need those people that tell us <laughs> straight talkers who tell us what 100%. we need to hear. One hundred percent. Yeah, and 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 I like what you said about the multiple people because we really people come into our lives for a season and play a huge role during that time, and it's you know that whole sense of. Uh, that you merge and then you part ways and there's someone else that either you're impacting or who's impacting you. Yes. Um, you know, and I think we talked a little bit about that, you know, in our, in our, in an earlier conversation, just that, you know, um, energy is infectious, you know, and the energy and the, uh, that you give off, right. Either attracts or repels people. And that's, and that's the truth. So that, you know, um, typically when things are going well in your life, it's because you are attracting those people by what you put out into the world. And if they're not going well, well, there's probably the energy that you're putting out is attracting the type of people, um, because that's the energy you put out and you, and you, and you live in that space. So, um, yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly that people come in and out of your life like seasons, um, but they're always for a reason. And, um, you know, understanding the importance of that. And if you truly have a strong relationship with someone and it's genuine and they are in your life for a season, you should be able to reconnect with them at some point in your life if you do. And it's like, Time never moved, right? It still go back to those moments that they were impactful in your life. Doesn't matter if it's a year from that time or 10 years, 20 years, you can always go back to that because that truly um, is an indicator of how impactful that person and that relationship that, that, that you had with them was. That is, that is so true. And I, I automatically think about my CTE community and uh, people within my education world who I've built connections with mm-hmm. that sometimes we see each other once a year at this specific conference yes. and it's time has not passed. <laughs> it might be a different city, but it, it feels like time hasn't really passed because that energy and those connections are there. So yeah, that's uh, definitely powerful when we think about the impact that we can have, but then continue to have. Definitely. So, and hopefully we'll be back to those opportunities, connect with one another again in person soon, because I think it's, it's valuable for our profession. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you talked earlier about zoom fatigue, which is real. So I may, maybe I should reword this question, but I'm not. (laughs) If you could have a 30 minute zoom meeting with anyone who has walked the earth at any point, 
who would it be and what would you want to ask them? You know, one of my um, heroes is El Haj Malik El Shabazz, otherwise otherwise known as Malcolm X. And um, when I was in sixth grade, my father gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X to read, and it changed my life. Um, it changed my life, like I very, very, very powerful. And I, that's one person I would like to speak to because, you know. In hindsight, you know, he didn't have a long life on earth. You know, when we see clips and we hear about people, especially during civil rights movement, you know, sometimes we forget how young they were, you know, um, during that movement. And then also when they when they were no longer on earth. And I would really I would like to ask them him. um, When did he know? And when did he have the courage to know and speak, you know, his truth without fear? Because, you know, he went through so many different stages of his life, you know, and transformations um, to, to the end that, where he was at the end of his life. But he was always outspoken and was honest. And even though he knew that his life was in danger, um, he continued to speak the truth um, no matter what. And, you know, eventually, you know, as as history has now shown that the people that he was closest to actually had a huge part into his assassination. Um, but knowing that and knowing that those people are in your, your, your sphere, right, in your circle, I would really want to ask him, how did he know? When did he know? And how, and how did he have... Um, the will and ability um, to be fearless and to still speak his truth. Wow, that's that's so powerful. The the ability to be fearless and still speak his truth, and that's more important now. I, I, actually, I can't say that. That's always been important, but I think it resonates more with me now than it has in the past, just with the world events going on around us. Mm-hmm. What do you think would be, uh, if you had to think about the best advice that you've received over the years, what would, what would that be? What are you waiting for? <laughs> oh. what, are you, what are you waiting for? Yeah, that, I would. I would definitely say that. What are you waiting for? You know, because um, I mean, it's it, it's simple, right? But but hearing that, it does it 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 always makes me reflect on that, right? So if there's something you want to do. What are you waiting for? You know, um, and you know it, and you and you want to take this opportunity. It's in front of your face. Go ahead and do it. You know, but that definitely. What are you waiting for? Mm. That's so good. It just, uh, that resonates. I wrote that on the back of my notebook just now so that, uh, <laughs> that I'm reminded of it from time to time when I see it. What do you enjoy most about your current role? You know, I, I love that um, the district that I'm in, in terms of its size, I've worked in um, rural settings, suburban, urban, large, um, high school districts, large to medium middle school districts, um, elementary school districts. Um, and 
you know, uh, my school district now, we are, we are tiny but mighty. We are one building, one school, pre-K through eight. We're a neighborhood school. Um, everyone walks to school. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great opportunity um, to connect and it's true community. You know, we have multi-generational families that are, that, that are, that are, you know, in our building in our, within our student population. Um, you can, you know, when I drive into work, you know, um, when the weather is nice, you know, we're in Chicago right now, so it's, it's not, it's pretty cold and there's snow out, but you know, on a summer day, spring day or late fall, like in the morning, you can see people outside. They're like walking their kids. They'll wave to you. You know, it's, um, you, you have the, the opportunity to know families personally, you know, and, um, I'm very, also very proud that I get a chance to work within the African-American community. Um, you know, that, that is something I'm very proud of. Um, I've, you know, I've worked in multiple settings, you know, um, affluent, um, I've worked in, you know, middle-class, you know, um, I've worked in, you know, majority white school districts, um, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, diverse school districts, but, you know, I, I feel very proud that I can work within the African-American community as an African-American educator, and especially as an African-American male educator. Um, so as, you know, if, if your listeners do not know, I am the, I am, I'm one of few members of the 2% club because we African-American male educators make up 2% of the entire education population. 2%. Wow. 2%. So um, as we, as I put that statistic out there, you know, when we talk about achievement gap, when we talk about access and opportunity gaps, when we talk about, you know, the power of an adult that is in front of a child, we think about the how powerful it is if you see someone that looks like you, right? Absolutely. You can see yourself in that person, you know, um, it makes, it makes a world of difference and it, and it goes back to the whole SCL piece, right? Imagine, you know, and I'm, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience. I didn't have a black male teacher until my undergraduate years. Wow. I was in college, in college. Right. So think about if think about, you know, you personally, if you never saw a, had a white woman, female teacher in front of you. Oh, and if, never saw that until you got to college. Which was Profound. the majority. That was the majority right? of my teachers. And then right? I, I, I can only think of one. Um, I had a phys ed teacher in first grade who was black, and I mm-hmm. can't think of a single educator since then, um, male or female. That's <laughs> mind blowing. It's so I think you know we have to even you know think about and that's the self awareness that I spoke about earlier about our privilege, our entitlement, and also our bias that exists. Because every time that we speak to something, we're speaking from our own perspective, right? And we're not, it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of another. 
But you know, if there's not if there's not a lot of black male teachers, educators out there, you know, and we want to increase the number of students and have representation, AP classes, honors classes, right? We talk about STEM and we want to see more representation. You know, having those folks, you know, to be visible is a start. And so that's, that's, I'm proud. I'm able to do that. Um, I'm proud, you know, my, I work um, with other um, African-American, you know, teachers, administrators. My superintendent is an African-American woman, uh, building principals, African-American woman. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I, I really love the fact that I can do that. So as I talk about, I told you about, I, I didn't have a black teacher until my undergraduate year. I didn't even work with a lot of other black people or, or colleagues and definitely not administrators until, um, until like the latter half of, of my career when I started to get into upper administration. So, you know, that's just something to kind of, you know, always think on and think about, you know, as we talk about the future of our, of our profession and the future of um, the young people and the opportunities that they have, um, is that the importance of that. Not saying that you have to do that, you have to, you know, be from a certain background, race, ethnicity, et cetera, but it makes a big difference and it has a huge impact. So I'm, I'm grateful that I can do that. I'm grateful that, you know, I can speak to the parents and families that remind me of my family, um, that, that want to talk to me and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's good to be able to do that and, and help, um, and be there for, for them. Well, you know, and with that, I think that we have to be very mindful and deliberate when we tap on someone's shoulder, because I think about how many opportunities I've had only because someone did that shoulder tap. Hey, Rachel, have you thought about applying for the board? Have you thought about applying for this position? And And we've got to make sure that we have people representing the folks that we serve, whether it's in leadership positions, you're thinking about your staff. But especially in our in our classrooms, um, for our students to really be able to um, see themselves in in those future careers and have that person that really connects with and relates to them. So. Yes, yes, exactly. You hit it right on the head. Yeah, and you know, and with that too, I think that even um, I, being someone, I love designing presentations, slide decks for, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes people will send me a slide deck to review for them and to give them feedback on it. And it, it, it'll stand out to me, to me, it's so blatantly obvious when I see a slide deck where all of the stock images, um, are of the race that that person is. And it's, yes. typically it's, it's, <laughs> and it's just like, um, or, or you'll see that it's a female who is kind of pulling out her hair and upset in an emotional setting. Or if it's a leadership image, it's that white male in a suit. Yes. And, so, yes. and so there's just so many stereotypes and we're just, we just continue to um, perpetuate the cycle by these things that are, are, are small changes that really do make a big difference. Yes, yes. Yes, totally. I, I totally agree with you. And it's and it's once again to go back to the self awareness, right? That 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 competency, that self competency. You know, sometimes we're not even aware of what we're not aware of. Absolutely. Well, 
what would be something that you would change about either career and technical education or just education in general? What would it be and why? Well, you know what? Um, I would love to have more of folks in the CTE world um, get a platform and more, I'll use the term mainstream education, right? Um, Because it's funny that that the CTE world, they have traditionally been the innovators (laughs) of education, right? That's, that's, that's that's it. Right. And, but yet like, it's almost as if they're kind of an afterthought in some conversations and I'm just, you know, speaking, you know, it's, and, and I, and I wondered like, well, wait a minute, like everything that we're, that we're, that we want for our students, right? We, especially now we talk about STEM so much and we talk about, you know, college and career readiness. Like I would love, I would love, I would love to see um, the CTE community tapped for more work and thought partners um, in the future of education, um, especially when we talk about student agency um, and the importance of that. Um, I would love that. I would, you know, um, I think that that it's so important um, to do that because when we talk about options, right, um, for student, every every student, you know, may not be four year university college bound. That may not be their track, but they may have some unbelievable skills that may just need a certification or a little a little technical or trade school that is going that you know is going to catapult them to whatever they want to be. So I would love to, I would love to see that. I would love to see um, them brought more into fold. You all come into the fold and and having a bigger voice and a presence um, in the future. Well, I have to say amen to that being that CTE is my, is the world that I live in. But I also want to point out that uh, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about the different things that you're doing for students with the field trips, taking them to colleges. And this is within a K-8 environment. And I think that it's just so important to introduce students at that young age to careers, to college, and help them start thinking big and you know preparing them in that trajectory for when they do get to high school. Yes. Because, I mean, you, you know better than I do, high school is almost too late. <laughs> Right. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not. We have exceptions. I had no clue what I wanted to do in high school. I had no clue what I wanted to do in college either. <laughs> but that's another I, story. Yeah, I, right. I'm, I'm there with you. But you know, like, I mean, you know, from you know, I have my daughter is a sophomore in high school. My son's in seventh grade. Okay, oh, wow. and just and just understanding the you know where they how quickly things have been expedited in terms of you know, education from when they were in kindergarten to where they are now, right? Um, It's almost like, you know, having ideas of what you want, what you're interested in, right? I'm fortunate, my my daughter's fortunate that she has a pathway already started for her as a freshman in high school to what she eventually wants to study in college. And she can can receive um, college coursework credit, Right. She's learning a lot of the foundational skills that she needs, the information. And, you know, I just think about how fortunate she is to do that. But, you know, she knew what she wanted, had an idea. But yet the thing about it was there was an opportunity. So when she entered high school, 
the environment was already conducive for her to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. Have you embarked on any projects recently that you would like to share with us? Of course. <laughs> uh, of course I have. Um, one, I kind of so. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, you know uh, there's a couple of things. One um, that I'm really proud about is that I have um, become very good friends with um, a gentleman by the name of Eric Hewson. Um, he is the CEO and founder of um, the largest mental health advocacy um, nonprofit organization um, in the country. Um, and it's called, um, you know, same here. And, and um, you know, the umbrella is we're all a little crazy, but it's, it's phenomenal. He has representation from professional athletes from every sport, women and men. Um, he has clinicians. He has, um, you know, business folks. And the best thing about it is he has the everyday person that's in his organization. And, and they do phenomenal work. Um, they've partnered with so many organizations um, in terms of this. And he and I became friends because we share a lot of our uh, similarities in our journey and our challenges getting through, um, you know, mental health crises. And we, we become brothers through that. And we have a program, um, a show that we do on Beluga, um, the educational platform, and it's called Hear Us Out. And he and I, um, you know, kind of go one on one. And uh, we talk about issues of social justice, um, race, ethnicity. Uh, we talk about politics and, you know, always with the thread of mental health um, involved because, you know, that's that that's our bond. And um, we started that right around right about, you know, mid-May, which we all know what was going on in the in the country during that time, um, in terms of, you know, social justice issues. And, and, um, so we, we started that off and we've had about five, five episodes and they're going strong. So, um, you know, please, you know, that's one thing we're doing. So if you, anyone's familiar with Beluga, get on there and, and, and look for same here, um, hear us out show with, with Eric and myself. The other piece is that, as I talked about the alphabetic survival guide, um, my friend and I who created that and my friend's name is Kavita Tana and um, she's phenomenal, um, phenomenal educator. Um, she and I decided to, um, you know, grow that into something bigger because, you know, we're both big on impact and it was, we worked so well in my district. We decided let's, can we, can we kind of, you know, grow this and expand it. And we brought in two other um, folks, um, with us, uh, Christian Rose um, Bielan, she's in Rhode Island, and Linda Amici, who's right outside Columbus, Ohio. And we have created um, what we call Anchors, uh, Educators, Anchoring Educators. So we are the Anchor Ed Collaborative. Um, we do have, nice. and what we do is, we're really about educators helping other, other, other ed educators out. And we designed a 15 week course based on well-being 
um, wellness, mental health. Um, we also have topics of race, social justice, equity, um, diversity. Um, and, you know, we meet, we'll be meeting once a week on Wednesday evenings. Right now we're slotted to do 6 p.m. Um, Eastern time. And um, it's going to be great. We, we actually partnered um, with the university. So we're off also offering university credit. So that's something I'm really proud of that we were able to come together and put a program together like that. And once again, it's based upon need, right? Um, all of us being from different parts of the country and world, seeing the same thing, just you and I have been talking about um, on this show about the fact that we need to be looking out for each other and helping each other out, especially for the well-being. And it's so important. And we know there's a need. You can see it through social media. Um, you see it on Twitter feeds and you know, that the self-care um, and understanding that is huge. So that's that's a that's, that's a project that I'm so happy about. That starts on um, February 16th and we'll go 15 weeks. And, um, we're, you know, we're really, really excited about it. Well, please share the link with me. I'm going to add that to this podcast episode. So folks who are listening and can access that. That just sounds phenomenal. Thank you. Wow. Well, well, I, I knew there had to be something big in the works. I was wondering if it was a, a three B's book. Um, but uh, this was... <laughs> well, I, I knew you weren't going to let me get away without talking about three B's. Yeah, oh, yes. Yes. So please, what, what are these three B's? <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, the three B's, um, is my, you know, platform, you know, for um, basically social, emotional well-being and wellness. Um, you know, it's it's my framework. The three Bs are balance, boundaries, and breaks. Balance, boundaries, and breaks. And um, those words became reoccurring themes as I was going through. Um, my healing with uh, my mental health um, challenges. Um, and I can tell you, I got, I got to, I got to, you know, to a point where things, you know, were, were challenging for me, very challenging for me. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that because as I said before being vulnerable is part of, if part of who my, who I am and being authentic um, because I know there's other folks that are out there, especially in our profession that have either felt that they were getting to that point or either got to that point um, or have been. And, um, you know, as I was healing and going through my healing, you know, those three words kept coming into play. There were themes, uh, whether, you know, um, whether I was speaking with my therapist or in a group setting or what have you, or just, I was personally reflecting. It was, it was, it was, um, you know, balance, right. And the challenge of balance, you know, and I think that's something that we've seen now bigger, than it has before. And that's, you know, balancing your time, energy, and efforts um, and providing it to people that deserve it, right? And that can reciprocate it. So balancing your time, energy, and efforts um, to people that deserve it, and that will reciprocate it. And that goes for activities too, you know? Um, so don't waste your time. Pretty much, that's a fancy way of saying don't don't waste your time on things and people that aren't worth it. Um, you so, know, so true. You have to value your time and uh, and let people earn earn yes. your energy. 
Yes, 100%. Um, so, you know, for me, um, I realized that I didn't have balance. I was all over the place. I was, you know, literally, I I, I was. I, I didn't have a way to kind of ground myself. And it was work-related, whether it's personal life. You know, I was just, and that was it. And I, and I, it was hard for me to, to balance that and find that because I've, I wasn't grounded and centered in myself to be able to do that. Um, and it's hard for a lot of people, right? That's, that's the big question is, you know, how do I balance this? You know, um, you know, I, I feel, I literally feel for, um, mothers, especially now that are in a, in a space where they may have to choose between their parenting or their career or have always had to choose that. Right. You know, as men, we're fortunate, you know, we're very privileged. We don't have to always think about, we didn't have to think about, well, if I become a parent, does that mean that my career has to end? Do I have to give that up? You know, and I think that whole idea of balance is tough for everybody, especially now, um, given the, the, the pandemic. Right. Um, we always had multiple roles, wore many hats in our family or in our, you know, in our work life, personal life. But we can always compartmentalize them. But now everything is running simultaneously. And that's where the challenge is. So balance is so key. Um, the second B is boundaries. You know, for me, um, you know, I had a hard time saying no. And that's because of my personality. I'm, I'm, I'm a giver. I like to help people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to help out and fix things. Um, you know, and I realized throughout my personal life and even my career, I didn't say no. So like professionally, you know, if so, there was someone that needed to do, um, they needed a sponsor for a club. I volunteered, you know, if someone needed, if they need a coach, like for my son's, you know, basketball team or little league team, I volunteered to assist or my daughter's team. I volunteered to assist because nobody else would do it. Um, you know, it's, it's that, it's that idea of, you know, just, doing more, trying to prove something or just feeling like, oh, if I don't do it, I'm going to look like a bad person, you know, and that, and for me, that was, that was one of my downfalls. I couldn't say no, I couldn't, it was hard for me to create and adhere to my own personal boundaries. I know we talk about a lot of, a lot of times about others' boundaries, which are, which are always priority first and foremost, but like sometimes we don't adhere to our own personal boundaries. We let people, you know, do things right? That affect us when we can just say no. We become passive in that. We don't want to protect ourselves. We don't want to look out for ourselves, but we'll yet we'll give everything. And this goes back to kind of the filling the cup, right? You know, in our profession, we'll, we'll do so much for everyone else, but we forget about ourselves. So saying no, you know, was something that I had to learn and, it, and it's critical. And the last one is breaks. And um, for me, as I kind of told in my story earlier about, you know, kind of um, I was a late bloomer, so I felt I had to fast track a lot and catch up. Um, and like, so I was always doing something. I never paused. So as I went, as I went through those different roles and, and got promotions and, and went to school and got another degree, I never really paused and allowed myself to be in the moment and to appreciate that. And, you know, what started happening was I started neglecting um, my self-care. And I started neglecting, you know, everything that I needed, whether it was sleep, whether it was time with my family, whether it was just a time to pause and do some reflection. And that's what's even more difficult, you know, about the role of an administrator, an educator, is that everyone's always pulling on us. 
So we have to find time and space so we can pause. And especially now, you know, uh, everything is so fast paced and our society in general globally is all about instant gratification. And we, we forgot about patience and allowing things to just happen and absorbing and being in the moment. So the last one is the breaks, you know, taking kind of time out for yourself, um, taking some self-care. You know, another thing that we don't do very well in the education profession, we don't take advantage of our sick days when we're sick. Now we yeah. do. Now we do because of because of the pandemic. But like, should it have taken a pandemic for us to 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 look at our physical health and say, and maybe we if we if we do have a cold or a cough or a sore throat or a fever, maybe we shouldn't try to push through. Maybe we should take a day off and make sure that we're well well rested before we come back. Um, you know, and for me, like I was the same way. I didn't take sick days. I pushed through. Um, Vacation days. I was always one of those employees that was forced to take their vacation days because I couldn't. I can only carry so many over. Um, you know, it was just it's just the way that I was doing it, and and I stopped. You know, taking vacations with the family, taking vacations for myself. You know, and those are things that that you know are, are real. And you know, as I began to get deeper and heal and reflect, I realized that those three areas and themes, right? Typically, if someone has challenges in their life, it's usually in one of those three areas, there's a deficit, either the balance part, the boundaries, or the breaks. And once you understand that and you're self-aware of what those challenges you have and deficits are, then it becomes a way, how do you go about restoring that and fixing that? And for me, that was an eye-opener. You know, just having that mirror in front of my safe face and saying, oh, Evan, this is kind of, you know, your thing. This is why. So it's, you know, the, the three B's are rooted in dialectical behavioral therapy, mindfulness. Um, you know, I'm a mindfulness practitioner. Uh, I meditate daily. Um, it's, you know, three B's have literally saved my life. Literally did, you know, brought me, brought me a long way um, from where I was. And I'm still growing, still getting better. But, um, you know, that's how the three B's came about. And I, I just started saying those three words when I was um, healing and getting better. And then, um, you know, I just started going with it and it started resonating with people. I had no idea it would. And obviously, you know, because I'm an educator, that was my first, you know, uh, base in terms of, you know, educators are really understanding it because of the role. And I, and I get that, but then I'd speak to people that were in different professions and it started resonating with them. Didn't matter, like, you know, if what field they were in, didn't matter if they were a parent, if they, you know, mom, dad, you know, athlete, um, you know, business person, like it all, it started resonating. So it really started to catch on. And, um, you know, I'm excited about that. You know, um, I do have a book in the works. Um, so uh, hopefully that'll be coming out, you know, sometime soon, you know, 2021 um, is here. So, so we'll see. How that goes, but you know, aside from that, I'm just you know always willing to spread spread the message and and help people in terms of you know understanding uh, mindset and understanding the power of the mind and what the mind can do and how they can over overcome obstacles and also obviously with the um, you know emotional intelligence and social emotional well being because I think it all goes hand in hand in terms of being the best version of yourself so you can. Uh, be there for others that, that, you know, count on you. 
Well, and I think that in the education community, especially, and our, our leaders, the uh, we're yes people. You know, we yeah. <laughs> we're always wanting to help, and a lot of, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else, and many times that is our health and our well being. And uh, I think that those are just important things that we step back and remember, and and truly are cognizant of. Um, having that balance, taking those breaks and, and sometimes just having those boundaries to say, no, that's too much. Yes, I agree. Excellent stuff. And, and and I also have to share, because I love this part uh, where you talk about, it's okay to be selfish about your mental health and wellness in order to be the best version of yourself so that you can be selfless for others you help. So that's, that's huge and crucial. Yes, always. When you're when you're talking about the breaks piece, it reminds me of Sean T. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He does the insanity workouts, okay. and uh, <laughs> I used to do them a few years ago. and And he would say a break will fix you, and he's referring to a break in a workout. But it would always resonate with me too, just about how sometimes just taking a break during the day, and you're just so much more. Um, you have so much more clarity when you go back to what you were doing or just taking a vacation and then coming back and all of a sudden everything just seems uh, so much more doable and achievable than before. Right. But I um, wanted to see uh, what you envision for the future of education when you're just thinking about moving forward. We've had so many changes. What do you see for what's ahead? Well, I definitely, um, see a continuation of some type of um, hybrid learning and working model. Um, I think the days of, of being in person and brick and mortar all the time, 20, you know, five days a week um, for students um, and for educators, I think those days are over. Um, I think we've, we've been able to demonstrate that it is achievable. You can do that. And once again, I'll, I'll, I'll tap into you folks in the CTE world. You've probably been saying that for a long time and, and it's been falling on deaf ears that, that, you know, you can, you can still achieve some success, a lot of success um, with proper planning in terms of, um, you know, remote learning and then not having to be physical brick and mortar. So I think that's, that's one thing that I see for the future. Um, the other part is um, I think there's going to be a need for, um, working on the well-being of adults um, and children. We've talked about the SEL a lot, you know, for kids, but I think, you know, this pandemic has demonstrated that there's a need for that for adults as well. So I think that's going to be a, a push. Mental health is going to be big um, moving forward. I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be integrated and need to be integrated into the work that we do. And then I think, you know, also the idea of what true personalized learning is and can look like. I think that's, you know, also some some indicators. And we've seen um, probably, you know, um, both ends of that, what it could look like, what it can't look like. And, but there is probably a, a middle path of what it can be um, for students because we have some students that, you know, have flourished um, you know, working online and kind of having being self-paced and others have had some challenges, but you know, the reality is they, those are probably the same strengths that those students had or challenges they had when they were in person. We just didn't, you know, pay attention as not as much as we should have before. And, um, 
you know, the final thing that I would say is that moving forward, hopefully we begin to truly embrace the idea that students will drive their learning and that we as the educators, we can, we can, you know, remove the ego and understand that our role is to be that of a facilitator of learning and the idea of the student just sitting and getting information is long over and it should have been over a long time ago. You know, our, like if a student wants answers, they can Google that. They don't need a teacher to regurgitate information to them so they can get answers. They need support navigating how to find the answers, how to vet those answers, how to provide, um, you know, the right um, documentation, research behind that, and helping that learning path. That's what the role of adults um, in education should be. And I have, and that is, that's what I envision for, you know, for, for the future um, in terms of that, is that, you know, this, that's, that, you know, adults will become facilitators uh, of student learning and take a larger role in that. Students will take a larger role in their own personal learning. And, um, you know, the teachers and educators will take, let their ego to the side and kind of take the back seat <laughs> and, and allow, you know, students to experience that learning, you know, and understand that, you know, that's part of SEL, right? They're going to make mistakes. They're going to fall. They're not going to be they're, they're not going to get everything right. And that's okay. We don't have to come and rescue right away, but we need to be there to help them navigate um, their learning path. And I think that is what um, is going to be huge and so critical moving forward in education. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about the things that we can Google. Yes, there's some information that you need to be able to rattle off the tip of your tongue that you can't take the time to ask Google or ask Siri. But when you hear about a project, my um, my sister was sharing with me that her nephew, or my nephew, her child, uh, was, had to define words, terms, but wasn't allowed to use the internet. He had to use a physical dictionary. And I get the idea of using books, but at the same time, I've written three books and not once did I open a physical dictionary or encyclopedia. <laughs> you know, everything was right. using what was at my fingertips, being able to Google right. it and reference yep. it that way and cite it that way. So yeah, there's a lot of things that, that I think people are realizing um, are, are backwards and don't serve the youth of today. But then there's other things where we still hear these examples and you just, think, wow, this is really still happening. Okay. <laughs> but well, Evan, this has been such a great conversation and I really appreciate you joining me today for the podcast. And I've, I'm sure our listeners are getting as much out of it as I am, but um, thank you for being here. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in. I hope that you will be a guest on a future podcast. And if you are not a member of NCLA, please join and make this your professional organization. You can reach me at info at ncla-cte.org. And thanks again, Evan. Thank you very much, Rachel. Peace and blessings. Oh.